Hi, everyone, and welcome back for the 24th episode of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm your host, Josh Seidman. Federal policymaking in the United States, especially in the employment law context, and even more so in the leaves and accommodation space, doesn't happen all that often. It's a rare treat, some might say, sort of like an eclipse. It can be mesmerizing to witness, but you may need special glasses in order to get a really good look at it. But then again, the last few weeks have seen some rarities come our way. Yankee starting pitcher, Domingo Herman threw a perfect game. The skylines in New York City, Chicago, and elsewhere were momentarily shrouded in eerie yellow and orange haze. Victor Wenbanyama, a seven foot four, three point shooting center who can dribble the ball up on a fast break, made his NBA Summer League debut with the San Antonio Spurs. I certainly was watching. And we even had a potential Northern Lights visit here in the Northeast of America. So, when the newest federal employment law, which just so happens to be in the workplace accommodation space, went into effect last month, it made at least some sense within the larger scope of all the goings on in our country. Following up on episode 23 of Take It or Leave It, where we examined the Supreme Court's decision in Groff versus DeJoy and its impact on the standard for determining when a religious accommodation constitutes an undue hardship for an employer, today we will be diving into the newly minted Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, or PWFA. The PWFA was signed into law by President Biden in December of 2022 as part of the fiscal year 23 omnibus spending budget. The new law went into effect in late June of 2023 and has already had major implications on employers and how they handle and administer accommodations for pregnant individuals. With such a significant federal mandate coming to most employers around the country, I am so excited, so ecstatic, and so grateful to have my colleague and very good friend Debbie Kaplan joining me for today's episode to help our listeners get a handle on the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Debbie is senior counsel based out of Seifarth's Los Angeles Century City office. She has more than 20 years of experience as an attorney in California and helps clients successfully navigate the entire employment relationship in California from pre-hire to separation. Debbie also is a core member of Seifarth's Leaves of Absence Management and Accommodations team. Clients look to Debbie when they have questions about California employment laws, as well as all things Leaves of Absence and Reasonable Accommodations on a national level. Debbie, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here, Josh. Oh, thanks, Debbie. It is so great to, to be, I mean, we speak all the time, but it is so great to be doing this with you in sort of an official podcast capacity. This is going to be wonderful. I know. I'm looking forward to it. Me, me, me as well. We have so, so much good ground to cover. And uh, we, we, we talk about things all the time, certainly leave of absence and accommodations related. Uh, we've both been to Hawaii recently, which was super fun. Uh, any, any good sort of anecdote stories to tell from your, from your trip in Hawaii recently? Well, you uh, mentioned that we should go uh, up to see Haleakala for the sunset oh. tour, which I've always wanted to do and I loved, but my 18 year old daughter, uh, while she enjoyed the the sunset, was not so thrilled with the hours long uh, bus ride. So um, I dragged her along to that. So I got to do something I really wanted to do. She wasn't so excited. Oh, I love it. No, that's fine. She'll 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 look back and really and remember only the good parts. I'm sure. That's right. That's right. Yep. I remember how beautiful it was seeing the sun setting on one side of the mountain and the moon rising on the other side. That 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 was something to see for for, for sure. 
Yeah, um, it's amazing. Yeah, it was. Well, I'm I'm glad uh, you enjoyed, and um, obviously, welcome back. I always miss you when 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 you're not around. <laughs> um, so, with that, why don't we get uh, started? Um, let's maybe level set things for uh, for our listeners today. Get things started. What is the Pregnant Workers Fantasy? Tell us a little bit uh, about this new law. Well, um, as you mentioned, it's a new federal um, law on pregnancy accommodation that just went into effect on June 27th. So it's brand new. Um, and it's really going to change the way that um, covered employers need to approach accommodating um, pregnant workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for sure. And and let me ask a super quick follow up then. So in terms of uh, employers, who who are we talking about here? How how does the scope of coverage kind of look for which employers are going to be impacted by this new law? I mean, just about everybody's going to be covered except for very small employers. It's the same level um, of covered employer as Title Seven. So essentially, if you have fifteen employees anywhere, you're going to be a covered employer. Uh, it covers private as well as public, um, state, and government local um, agencies. So it, it really is a broad law. Wow, for sure. It, it, it certainly is. And and very related to that, again, just sort of baseline, what are we looking at in terms of what type of employees, workers are going to be eligible uh, and covered by this law? So again, pretty much any employee who is working for one of these covered employers, meaning you have 15 or more employees, the employees are going to be covered at it doesn't appear that it's going to cover independent contractors, but it's going to cover all employees, seasonal, part-time, full-time, as well as applicants. It will apply uh, to applicants as well. So, um, you know, very broad coverage here. Certainly. Wow. It, it, it certainly is. Um, okay. So so we've got the, the basics, right? Just came into effect, broad scope coverage, broad for both companies and workers. Now, before we get too far into the weeds and, and kind of how things have now played out in light of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. I, I want to take a, a quick second to clear something up for our listeners. At the federal level, there's already a law known as the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, or PDA, as far as I, I understand. And I, I want to just kind of set the table. Is this new Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the PWFA, just kind of duplicating the PDA? Or, or if not, how is the new mandate different? Sure. I mean, that that's a really good question. I think a lot of employers are asking that question themselves. Mm -hmm. So there really is a distinction between these two. The PDA, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, federal law, you know, was groundbreaking in its time. But that law is really just an anti-discrimination law. So it's focused on ensuring that pregnant workers aren't treated any worse than non-pregnant workers when it comes to workplace accommodations. So under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the, the way it works is that employers can't refuse to accommodate someone with pregnancy-related disabilities or issues um, if that same type of accommodation would be provided to someone who isn't pregnant with similar work restrictions. So in that sense, the PDA is really protecting against disparate treatment rather than, you know, mandating any specific type of accommodation per se. Mm -hmm. The Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, this new law, 
is a reasonable accommodation law. So much more similar to the ADA or state disability laws. And it actually requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations that a pregnant worker might need because of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. So under this new law, a pregnant worker wouldn't have to show that a non-pregnant worker received the same accommodation uh, in order to to request and be eligible to receive an accommodation. They just have to show that they're entitled to an accommodation under this new law. And we'll talk more, I know, about the pretty minimal um, requirements uh, that are needed to show whether someone's entitled to an accommodation under this law. Oh, absolutely, we will. And, and that, that's really helpful. That, that explanation, I and mean, that's something that when, when news about the PWFA first broke, this was something that, that I needed to clear up just for, for my own basic understanding of, of, of what's changing and, and what isn't and how the PDA and PWFA are going to interplay. Um, so thank you for that. I, I know that's going to be really valuable for folks. Um, you mentioned during your last response the ADA. So let's let's take a, a few minutes to, to chat about it. Employers are already required to accommodate dis disabled employees under the ADA. So how is this new law, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, different from the ADA? How do they sort of stack up? Sure. So the ADA um, provides that employees are entitled to reasonable accommodation if they have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity or major bodily function, or they have a record of a substantially limiting impairment. Um, so while it's possible under the ADA to be pregnant and have a pregnancy-related disability that would be covered under the ADA, something like gestational diabetes, for example, pregnancy in and of itself, just a, an uncomplicated pregnancy, is not considered a disability under the ADA. So under the ADA, employers are not obligated to provide reasonable accommodations to pregnant workers unless they have, again, some type of comorbid condition that rises to the level of a disability. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so what's really different is that under this new law, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, for the first time, we're getting a law on the federal level that fills this gap. And it provides that employees may be entitled to reasonable accommodation if they simply have a physical or mental condition related to, affected by, or arising out of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. There's no need to show that the condition is a substantially limiting impairment, um, just like as you would need to do with the ADA. It just needs to be essentially pregnancy-related. Wow. Yeah, that that is that is certainly a, a, a big a big change. <laughs> it definitely is. You know, another big area where um, the PWFA deviates from the ADA has to do with whether or not the employee is qualified under the ADA. Um, in order to be qualified, an employee has to be able to perform all of their essential functions with or without a reasonable accommodation. And surprisingly, and for the first time, we're seeing on a federal level that this new law is saying that um, an employee can still be qualified and entitled to an accommodation 
even if they have a temporary inability to perform an essential function. So, I, I mean, this is, this is really a departure. So, as most employers already know, the ADA requires that an, an employee be able to perform all their essential functions. Yeah. Removal of an essential function has never been required under the ADA, but under this new law, an employee can still be considered qualified if she's unable to perform an essential function, if it's for a temporary period, and the essential function will be able to be performed again in the near future. And of course, the employer has to be able to accommodate this um, removal of essential function. So it, it really is something entirely new that we haven't dealt with before, at least on the national level. Yep, it, uh, that, that's exactly exactly right, Debbie. It is, uh, you, you said a, a deviation for sure from what employers are, are typically used to and have processes designed around uh, for purposes of, of the ADA. Um, so it sounds like the million dollar questions here are, what is a temporary period? And what does it mean to perform the essential function again in the need to be able to perform the essential function again in the near future? Do we have a sense of how those two kind of questions are going to play out under the PWFA? I mean, those really are the million dollar questions. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, <laughs> this law on its face does not provide us really any guidance on those two critical issues. So the EEOC um, is going to need to issue regulations on this new law, and they're supposed to be out by December 29th of this year. So hopefully, when we see those regulations, we'll have some more clarity on these two points because, I, I mean, what does it mean? How temporary is a temporary period? What does it mean to be able to perform it again in the near future? And these are really vague terms. So for the time being, until we have some more solid guidance, my general recommendation in terms of a safe way to approach this is at least during pregnancy, while the employee is actually pregnant, I would consider the temporary period to be up until the due date of uh, the baby. And then, of course, you know, most employees are going to be disabled by pregnancy for six to eight weeks postpartum, you know, just as a, a regular pregnancy. Once we start getting into the postpartum period and extended need for, for accommodation as a result of you know, postpartum depression or some other type of postpartum complication, I think we're really going to need to look at those more carefully because I, I know I've seen certifications seeking accommodations for a year postpartum. So, and to me, that doesn't seem like a temporary period. So, I, you know, I, I think we're really going to need to take a closer look at those. But for pregnant workers who are actually you know, just pregnant, haven't given birth yet, I would say for the time being, accommodate through the due date, unless the restrictions that the employee provides are for a shorter period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I think that is, is helpful advice. And uh, the floor, as we've seen uh, in a lot of other leave and accommodations contexts, is constantly moving uh, on employers in terms of their obligations. And that's exactly what it sounds like is the case here. We, we're almost six months away still from getting this, these updated uh, regulations, getting these regulations issued that will hopefully give us clarity on these points. 
And in the interim, we're, companies are basically stuck in this purgatory where they need to tread carefully and be diligent and go step by step uh, through the process. So it, it, it sounds uh, like we at least have a little bit of a wait and see on our hands here. And <laughs> we do. I mean, there will be the EEOC will issue notice of proposed rulemaking. So we will have proposed regulations mm -hmm. anytime. Um, and I'm sure they'll go through, you know, a couple of iterations with public comment. So, you know, everyone should kind of keep an eye out for that. And that will give us an idea of where things are headed. But we're not going to know until those regulations are final in December. Yeah, absolutely. And let, let me ask this follow-up question r related uh, to these ambiguities. Are there any defenses to providing a pregnancy accommodation under this new law? Yes, but unfortunately, the only real defense is undue hardship. And that undue hardship standard appears to be just the same standard as applies under the ADA. So under the ADA, an undue hardship means a significant difficulty or expense for the employer. And as I'm sure most of our listeners know, undue hardship is a high legal threshold to try to establish, especially the larger the employer, the much harder it is to establish undue hardship because it's, it's really looking at quite a bit of it as a financial burden. Mm -hmm. um, which can be very hard to establish. So, you know, the other difficulty here is that unlike with the ADA, employers won't be able to kind of automatically deny proposed accommodations that require removal of essential functions. They're going to have to look into excusing essential functions for at least, you know, perhaps the duration of the entire pregnancy. So it, it really is a, a deviation. Mm -hmm. um, again, once we have those regulations, we'll hopefully have a better sense of what this temporary period and being able to perform the essential function again in the near future actually means. Um, frankly, I, I, it may not be until this starts to shake out through the courts and legal decisions that we get some real clarity about what those terms mean, but I'm hopeful that the EEOC will issue guidance that will help us. Yeah, me, me, me as well. I'm going to uh, keep keep that glass half full mentality going. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, another kind of follow up and and related to sort of the practical next steps for employers and and how they navigate this new law. Are are employers allowed to request documentation regarding an employee's requested pregnancy related accommodations or work restrictions? Is that is that something that we have a sense of? Well, unlike the ADA, which specifically permits employers to request reasonable documentation about disability and limitations, this law is silent on whether or not documentation can be required. But with that said, um, it seems reasonable that um, the this new law will follow the ADA in that regard and that you know, requesting reasonable documentation will be appropriate. It is important, though, to remember um, that there are some state laws that prohibit employers from requiring documentation for certain types of work restrictions. So um, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Washington, and Utah, there are certain types of kind of basic accommodations requesting additional or longer breaks, 
um, lifting over a certain amount that you're not allowed to ask for documentation for. So even though it may be permitted under the federal law, it's important to also consider your local state laws. Yep, 100% agree. That That is uh, the name of the game with leaves and accommodations. What, <laughs> what, what differently and sort of keep the whack-a-mole, uh, keep the whack-a-mole going. So, yes. Um, uh, let, let's talk is just sort of uh, kind of clear clear the air on, on one point to sort of baseline the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. What are the prohibitions that employers need to be aware of uh, that, that, that the new law is enforcing? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it because um, in the one sense, it's like, what does it require? And then on the other hand, it's what are we not allowed to do, right? Exactly. So the first thing we're not allowed to do is require an employee to accept some type of an accommodation, like force it on someone without engaging in that interactive process. Um, you know, you have to discuss it with the employee and there needs to be some kind of mutual agreement before you just do a, a cram down and require an employee to accept a certain type of accommodation. So that's important. Um, it's also a problem to deny, you know, if we're talking about an applicant or someone who's seeking, um, you know, another position within the company to deny a job or some other employment opportunity to an employee who's qualified just because she needs a pregnancy accommodation. Um, something else you can't do, require the employee to take a leave if there is some other reasonable accommodation that can be provided to keep the employee working. And this is similar to the ADA and other disability type laws. You know, leave is always supposed to be an accommodation of last resort. So we're always looking to keep the worker at work under these accommodation laws rather than placing them on leave. Um, of course, this includes an anti-retaliation provision. You can't retaliate against people and you can't interfere with their rights under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So that's essentially what you can't do. Yeah, no, that, that is, that's really helpful, Debbie, to, to lay it out that way. And, and again, give a sense of, again, we know that there are requirements, but to, to maybe reorient them in terms of what's prohibited, I think is helpful and leads me to my next question, which are, you know, thinking about sort of practically speaking, what are some types of pregnancy accommodations that employers should be considering under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act? Sure. I mean, most of these are, are things that um, most employers are probably already accommodating. Um, the House Committee on Education and Labor report that went along with this new Pregnant Workers Fairness Act provided some examples which are helpful. So things like um, seating or, you know, the ability to, to drink water during a shift. Um, receiving closer parking was mentioned, which is interesting. Having flexible hours. Um, receiving appropriately sized uniforms and safety apparel. I mean, that should be a, a given, but that is an accommodation that they've actually called out. Um, the ability to receive additional break time to use the bathroom or eat or take a rest. Of course, time off, um, leave of absence uh, for the birth and recovery. Um, and then they also mentioned being excused from certain types of strenuous activities or being exposed to you know, any kind of chemical or compound that's not safe for someone who's pregnant. Now, that, that is a helpful list. And, and again, a lot of solid practical points, as you said, a lot of things that likely already baked into companies' existing procedures, but, but still good to, to have them laid out uh, in that way. 
if the company sure. uh, violates the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, what are some of the types of damages that might be uh, available to the worker uh, that the employer uh, would, would be facing? Do you have a, can you give us sort of an overview of what that would look like? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we're looking at the whole panoply of uh, potential damages here, you know, front pay, back pay, compensatory damages, potential for punitive damages, attorney's fees, costs, of course, even injunctive relief, um, if that would be appropriate under the circumstances. So, you know, really the whole gamut of just like with Title VII, the same types of damages um, available here. Now, something that's important um, is that if an employer can establish that they engaged in a good faith effort to accommodate the employee in that interactive process, that can help mitigate any, you know, potential liability. So just as in the ADA context, it isn't a separate statutory requirement to engage in an interactive process like it is under California, you know, I'm a California attorney. Mm -hmm. Under under California's disability law, you're, you're required to uh, engage in an interactive process under the law, it's actually a separate legal violation not to hear that's not the case, but you want to do it because it provides kind of a, not necessarily an affirmative defense, but kind of a mitigating factor to potential liability. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that, those are great points, great points and, and very, very good advice. Um, let me wrap up with a sort of a final uh, two-part question here. So for employers that are listening to this podcast and have been uh, reviewing and thinking about the PWFA in the last several weeks since it came online, what are you recommending that employers do at this time to get into compliance with the act? And is there any uh, anything more in terms of Pregnant Workers Fairness Act developments that employers should be on the lookout for in the coming weeks and coming months? Sure. Um, I mean, I think what's going to be most important is uh, a bit of training uh, for definitely for HR and for line managers who are getting those requests for accommodations from employees to most of them should already be aware of how to handle a request for accommodation, but we need to explain to them kind of this difference when it comes to pregnancy now, and that for the first time, we're going to need to consider removal of essential functions, at least during someone's pregnancy. So that really is um, a difference, and it's something we're going to want to make sure that we are communicating to HR and management so that they're aware. Um, you know, Interactive process, as I just mentioned a couple minutes ago, is, is critical. You're going to want to be sure that you're engaging in the interactive process. If you have an existing policy or practice around what you do with interactive process, um, I would suggest developing a similar process for pregnancy. You know, it can be very similar, very parallel. But again, we're looking at um, a different standard in terms of who is qualified and, and what those accommodations will be. So you probably want to have kind of a parallel but separate process for pregnancy accommodation because what we don't want to have happen is have non-pregnant workers starting to come forward and say, hey, you provided this accommodation to someone who was pregnant. I want that same accommodation. It's a different standard because we have to consider removing essential functions for pregnancy and we don't 
for non-pregnancy disabilities. So that's going to be a challenge. So we really kind of want to handle these on two different tracks, call it something different, call it pregnant worker accommodation, as opposed to just accommodation of disability. I would suggest kind of differentiating between those two. Um, other important points, um, the EEOC did update the mandatory poster, the um, Know Your Rights Workplace Discrimination is Illegal posting. Um, it's up on their website, www.eeoc.gov backslash poster. You can get the latest version of that. Or if you um, have a vendor that provides an all-in-one poster for you, you should make sure you've reached out to that vendor if they haven't reached out to you already to get the updated version so that you've got that. And, you know, as a last point, as I mentioned, you know, those those regulations are coming in December. There will be proposed rulemaking, you know, drafts of the proposed regulations. So if you're interested in that and um, want to provide some, you know, public comment is accepted. So um, keep an eye out for those. And if there's something that you're interested in providing feedback to the EEOC on, go ahead and do that or reach out to us. I'm sure we'll be providing some feedback as well on those regulations. So we're always happy to hear what our clients are thinking so that we can provide that feedback as well. Yep, absolutely, Debbie. Wow, that was so much information, so much helpful guidance and tips and, and laying out the new, the new landscape for us and educating us on the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and some of its most important points and considerations that employers should know about. So really, thank you so much. You're welcome. Amazing. And uh, thank you, uh, Debbie, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to today's episode. We will see you next time.